Unashamed, the recovery podcast. Where we are breaking the shame and stigma of addiction and recovery. One episode at a time. By having real conversations about real recovery. Hey, Recovery family. Like I said, today we've got another guest with us, Sharon. Uh, My guest is a two-time rock bottom survivor. Uh, She is a relationship coach. Uh, She's a recovery speaker. She's a recovery author, a relationship expert. Uh, Like I said, she is a recovery author. She's got a book out. It is called Relationship Ready. My guest today is Miss Heidi Bush. Uh, Heidi, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking just a little bit of time out of your busy day today to come and speak with me and to share your story with my listeners. Oh my gosh, Josh, thank you so much for sharing your platform with me. I am delighted to be able to make a new friend and to, I always love talking recovery. So um, yeah, I thank you for the intro. It was like, so it's awesome. It's spot on. It's always like so flattering to hear people talk about that stuff. So it's really good. I, I love talking about recovery and I'm happy to share my story of bottoming out with drugs and alcohol and then bottoming out with men and relationships. And that's really what got me in a place where I wrote the book on, on relationships. So, um, if you want, I'll start at the beginning. I don't know exactly where you want, um, me to head off with this. Oh, before you do that, uh, Mm I know just based on just a little bit uh, I know about you and the time that I've read some stuff on you uh, that uh, you've got uh, uh, your book out. Uh, I've seen you've been on some other uh, shows, uh, Mm -hmm. podcasts, uh, and I know you're kind of this relationship recovery uh, specific, Mm -hmm. but I know there wasn't a time that you were always that person. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kind of take me into just a little bit of your past. Uh, And not so much starting at your your, your beginning Mm -hmm. point, but just kind of give the listeners uh, a little bit of context to the person that you used to be and the kind of the story that they're going to be hearing. Yeah, totally. So um, it's actually really interesting. When I think about the work that I ended up doing in the relationship context, and then the book that I wrote in that space, I realized that for me personally, I never could have done the relationship work I needed to do if I wasn't sober first. So that's, I mean, obviously we're on a recovery podcast. So a lot of your listeners are people who are sober in recovery or considering it, but there are people out there for whom the work that I've written on relationship stuff uh, they don't have to get sober to do it, but I had to, there's, I wouldn't have had a snowball's chance on the relationship stuff if I hadn't been sober first. So I, you know, it was always, I, uh, I won't take you all the way. It's not like it was a dark and stormy night, but like I was somebody who drank like, um, you know, I just could never really stay stopped. 
um, when I drank, you know, and I was a pretty high achieving drinker um, to the extent that like, you know, I graduated high school, I went to college, I followed kind of the linear social script of what we're supposed to do. Um, it was clear to me in my, in my early 20s and in my teenage years that I did not drink the way that my friends drank. Um, because a lot of times I would find myself like, you know, we started out, I talk about this a little bit in the book that it started out in the beginning, my first drinks that I had, my first drink was when I was 15. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, I belong. It was magic, right? You know, all these years I felt like I didn't have the book. I didn't, I didn't get the rule book. I didn't know how to do life. I was super afraid. I had only one lens through which I viewed everything, which was either, which was fear. And for a long time, the only thing that changed that lens was drugs or alcohol. And now in my life today, recovery changes that lens too. I like to think of it like an Instagram filter. Like my life is always filtered through fear unless I'm using drinking or working recovery. And today like using and drinking don't work. So recovery has to be the filter that I use to change the fear lens. Um, but so, you know, I, I started drinking when I was 15 and I had that effect that a lot of us talk about, which is that, like, I suddenly felt like I fit in. I was so funny. It wasn't it so great. And I led a little bit of a double life um, as a teenager because I was like goody two shoes, straight A student, but partying really every weekend. Um, and when I got to university, I really realized that like, I did not drink in the same way that my friends did because I would be like, once we start, like, why are we stopping? I'd be the person that would like, I would drink like the half drank drinks that people left around. One time I found myself drinking keg water, which was like disgusting, you know, like, oh my God, I just, if it was sitting around, I would drink it. And, um, and other, my friends, my sorority sisters were not drinking in the same way, you know? And so, and I would be that person that would go out with you. But then the minute that I wanted to go home, I did not want to wait for you to find your jacket, kiss your boyfriend goodbye, say, you know, whatever. I just wanted to split. And so a lot of times I would come home and I'd start writing in a journal and, you know, I'd start out writing like with a pencil or something, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on with me. Why can't I, what is, why am I different than everyone? And then like the pencil would break and I'd grab a lip liner and I'd be writing in that. And then like, I'd run out of space and like write down the margin. You know, I just, I used to call those my death journals cause they're like so dark and it's page after page of like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with me. And um, I grew up in an alcoholic household, but that's not what makes me an alcoholic. I mean, part of the reason I'm alcoholic is that when I start drinking, I cannot stay stopped. Um, and I, 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 if I can stop, I don't know how long you can stay stopped for unless I'm working recovery. And I think that's really kind of the story of anybody that's got a, a trouble with addiction is we don't know when to stop. You know, mm. most people, they kind of, okay, here, here's my, here's my stopping place. And they can go to that place and stop. And people who are struggling with addiction, they don't have that. It is either I'm going all the way or there's nothing. There, there's yeah, kind of totally. A thousand percent. And consequences really didn't matter to me. I mean, I think that people who have a regular relationship with alcohol or a normal relationship with alcohol, they experience a consequence. Like they piss someone off and they go, oh God, I need to lay off or whatever. But consequences never kept me sober and never kept me stopped. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, in recovery, I feel like we talk a lot about like play the tape out. And to some extent, yes, play the tape out. It's good for me to know that when I start drinking, consequences don't matter. But it's also good for me to know that I have lived a life where consequences did not stop me from drinking. And in that sense, 
playing the tape out doesn't really help. I have to have a relationship with a higher power to keep me sober because that's what keeps me sober and in recovery, not thinking about the consequences. Cause there were plenty of times that I had consequences, my drinking, and that didn't get me to stay sober or to stop drinking, you know? Yeah. Um, but one of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about that is that like, I, like I said, I had, I grew up in an alcoholic household. And when I was 17, my mom had a suicide attempt that landed her in the ICU. And from that, she is now 22 years sober, continuous sobriety. And my dad drank himself to death. And for a long time, because my drinking didn't look like my dad's drinking, which he was a maintenance drinker, you know, so he was somebody, and of course, you know, he was not, of course, he was 58 when he died from his alcoholism. And in his fifties, it got really bad. And that was when it started to be like, he was up every couple hours drinking through the night, really chained to the bottle type of drinking, which was not the kind of drinking I was experiencing in my 20s. So I was looking at that going like, well, that's the kind of drinking that kills people. Not what I'm doing. I'm out, I'm out every, you know, but I didn't realize like I'm out every night, you know, Monday is bucket night. Tuesday is $2 Tuesday. Wednesday is like whatever Wednesday is Thursday's weekend, Friday's weekend, Saturday's weekend, Sunday is recovery week is, is weekends, you know? Yeah. Um, so really I have to get to the point where it's like, what happened for me was I watched my dad die from his alcoholism. I didn't really understand how different, how our drinking was actually the same, even though it looked so different. And like when I came home, an integral part of my story is that when I cleaned out my dad's house after he had died, I went and looked at his kitchen table, which is where he'd spent his last year's drinking, right? And he would be, have a vodka on the rocks in the right hand and a pack of cigarettes, smoking cigarettes in his left hand. And he had worn away the varnish on our kitchen table in the shape of two arms, right? Cause he'd just been sitting there drinking his life away. Mm. Now he died in 2008. I didn't get sober till 2011, but I'll tell you what, when I had a moment of clarity on my sobriety date, which is 9, 10, 11, I realized like, if I keep drinking, I'm going to drink myself to death over the next 30 years. I'm going to be lucky if I drink and I die in a fiery car wreck quick. I'm going to be lucky if I drink and I go home with someone who hurts me. What's probably going to happen to me is I'm going to wear away the varnish on my table. I'm going to end up isolated and alone with just the drink and myself, you know, and that, even though it took a couple years for that visual to sink in, that was when I was like, damn, I got to try something different. Man, what a, uh, what a revelation to mm. realize, Hey, that that's, that's my future that I'm looking at. And that's mm -hmm. something. So how do you, we, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, and as we move more and more into your story, mm -hmm. uh, your testimony, like all great stories and like all great books, mm -hmm. they all have that beginning point. They all have uh, chapter number one. Mm -hmm. What, aside from that, which you've already told us with your childhood, with your father mm -hmm. and all that, aside from that, what does chapter one look like for Heidi? Yeah, I mean, it really looked like that moment of clarity on 9, 10, 11, where I, I woke up and I'll tell you, the night before was not anything crazier than usual. It was like pretty tame compared to some of the experiences I'd had. But for some reason, universe, higher power, God, whatever, you know, energy is out there. I had, I woke up the next morning and I had this clarity, like I'm either gonna die drinking or I gotta get sober. And I thought about that. It was like 8 a.m. It was one of those real early morning, you know, when you're like, when you, I don't know if you can remember when you were hungover and you wake up in the morning, you're like, God, I don't feel that bad. And then by 10 o'clock, you feel like garbage. You're like, oh my God. So of course at 8 a.m. I'm like, 
that's right. I got to quit. I got to be done. But of course, by noon, I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a little, maybe I'm overreacting a little bit. And honestly, the entire first chapter of my story of sobriety contained, it, it was, was really just a series of exercises of willingness. I knew deep down that I needed to get sober, but everything in my head was telling me, don't do this. This is an overreaction. You're being ridiculous. Your relationship with alcohol isn't that different from anyone else's. And so every single time that I got up to go to a meeting, you know, and that was, it took me three or four days to find um, some 12 step meetings that made sense for me to find a form of recovery that clicked for me to find something I was willing to do. And every single time that I got up out of the bed that I was staying in, you know, I, I was renting a room, I'd been divorced, all kinds, you know, my life, I did not get to recovery on a winning streak, as they say, that is true for me. Um, but every time I got up to go to a meeting, my whole body was like, don't get up, don't go out the door, don't get in the car, don't go to the meeting, you know, and I just did it anyway, even though my whole you know, my whole physical self was kind of screaming at me not to, I just did it anyway. And then I spent a lot of time in that first year of sobriety questioning whether or not I needed it. So much brain space was like devoted to this daily debate of like, am I overreacting? Is this stupid? Should I just drink? Da, da, da. And like, I sat on my hands and I didn't drink. And I did what people suggested, which was like to build community, to call other alcoholics, to go to meetings, to start trying to develop some kind of prayer practice. And I will tell you that I know that we're on a, a Christian recovery network. I did not have a relationship with God because my track record of my God was like not great, no. in my opinion. I felt like, look, I did this thing where I believed in God. It's like not turning out awesome. Here I am at fucking A, oops, sorry, at AA. You know, like this isn't great. Yeah. Um, but somebody once told me, I, I, one of the things I heard in early recovery that really stuck with me was like, you got to be honest when you're sharing in these 12 step meetings. And so I had about two weeks sober and I went to a 12 step meeting and I said, you know, I've overcorrected. Thank you very much. But I think I'm done here. I've got two weeks sober. My bank account's back in the black. Nobody's mad at me. You know, I'm, I'm done. And these three women came up to me afterwards who I love and respect. And one of them ended up being my sponsor. And they were all like, look, you got to pray whatever you do, you got to go home and you got to pray. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you got to find a God that you can do business with. And I'm like, all right. So I go home. I'm, I didn't really want to, I wanted to go to the bar, but I went home instead. And I hit my knees that night. And I said, you know what, God, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. I do not know what to do. And honestly, that has been my most honest prayer ever, because then I went to bed and I had this dream, an incredibly vivid dream where I was talking to my dad who'd been dead for four years, three or four years at this stage. And I was telling him that I was getting sober. And in the dream, he said to me, Heidi, I'm so happy for you, which that is a phrase he'd never said to me in real life. I mean, of course I woke up, cried my eyes out. Oh my God. Uh, you know, and I just, I remember thinking like, all right, I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to keep doing it. Like how bad could it be? So what if I overcorrected? Like how, you know, like, so I guess that's a very long-winded answer to your question, which is that the first chapter of sobriety for me was really filled with doubt um, and, and willingness, a combination of doubt and willingness. You know, um, one of my very first sponsors, uh, I've been in recovery since 2014, and one of the very first sponsors I ever told me, he said, Josh, the biggest battle that you're gonna face in recovery has been between these two mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the fight is won and lost in this space right here. And that's that's the truth. We we can talk ourselves in and out mm -hmm. of recovery. 
And Agreed. Very, very simple to do that. And so moving through that, that story there of where chapter one is. So you're, you're in recovery, you're two weeks in, you're <laughs> trying to talk yourself out of it. You've decided to stay. What mm-hmm. does the rest of your path into recovery look like? Well, really, it looked like being willing to just do the things that people suggested, you know, which was honestly, people in recovery and 12-step recovery talk a lot about like the miracles that they experience in in recovery. And the first big miracle that I had was that I was willing to take direction for the first time in a very long time. I, I My mom has always called me oppositionally defiant. I always want to argue with you. I used to. Always want to argue with you. Say up, I say down. You say left, I say right. You say God, I say no God. You you know, and like I just was so oppositionally defiant. I was always wanting to argue. I was always in this power-driven, ego-driven space. And for some reason, like, and that's really why I call it that moment of clarity, because it really was a moment of clarity and grace where I became um coachable and I became willing to take direction. So really the rest of that first year of sobriety looked like tons of 12-step meetings, building tons of community. Um, I did what they talked about not doing. I did start dating somebody when I had six months of sobriety. It obviously went down in flames. It only lasted three months. I'm very, but you know what? I'm so lucky that it didn't take me out because the reality is like you can do anything sober. And this is really where I guess I want to talk about this because this is for me, the crux of sobriety is emotional sobriety, right? And you can do anything sober that you did in drinking, in drunkenness, right? You can steal stuff. You can be dishonest. You can go to work late. You can be a, like a crummy person, right? You can do all that stuff in sobriety, Yeah. but Most you different. know, but I, I no longer have the ability to anesthetize myself to the feelings that come with that behavior once I'm clean and sober. And so if I don't find another way to behave, if I don't do some, if you're in 12 step, if I don't do some real six and seven work around getting rid of these old behaviors, flirting with guys for attention, just, you know, like doing whatever I want. Like when it comes to work, parking illegally, that was like a huge, <laughs> God, you know, whatever, stealing stuff. Like I am going to take myself to the edge of getting taken out. I have to find a new way to behave so that I don't have to, so that I don't require like anesthetic being anesthetized in my life. And so, you know, one of the things that got me to this place where I had this awareness around how important six and seven were, how important emotional sobriety was, was that I got into step work. So I did 12 step work and through doing 12 step work, even though I didn't really believe it, even though I wasn't really sure about it, I built a relationship with a higher power that I spent a lot of time trying to define and then decided, I don't really care. It's working. It's working. I don't need to know what it looks like, what it's history. I don't even really need to know what to call it. You know, I had a really, uh, I had an awesome experience with um, coming around to higher power, but it's kind of a long, it's probably a five minute long story. I don't know if we have time for it. What do you think? Yeah, we got time. Go ahead. Okay. So, you know, in, in 12 step recovery, my experience has been that um, people talk about a broad highway, that there's a lot of, you know, it's really believe in whatever you can believe in, right? Whatever gets you there. And so um, at first that's, that's what they're telling me. And I'm like, all right, well, like, I guess I believe in nature because like if I was out in a helicopter and I was over the ocean and somebody kicked me out of it, then I would like either drown in the ocean or get eaten by a shark. And in a very real way, both the ocean and the shark, although it's very dark, are bigger than I am. These are two entities that are bigger than I am. So, all right, I'm willing to believe in the ocean and in, in nature, that kind of stuff. And, I, and that got me through about a year of sobriety. 
And then I found myself at this wedding. A girlfriend of mine got married and I was at the wedding with another friend. I was actually trying to quit smoking at the time. And the girlfriend who drove me to the wedding was like, I got you a pack of cigarettes because I just don't know how crazy this wedding's going to be. And I'd rather have you start smoking again than pick up a drink. And I'm like, all right, that's fine. And I was so glad she did because you know what? The bar is low in early, you know, in early recovery, if all you do is don't drink, that's fine. Eat the candy, smoke the cigarettes, do whatever. Because you know what? I never did any of those things and went home with a stranger like I did when I was drinking, right? So, you know, do the other stuff. It doesn't matter. You'll get over it when the time comes. So, you know, I find myself at this wedding. It's totally crazy. There's fireball, bottles of fireball getting passed all through the, uh, even at just at the ceremony, all these people are passing bottles of fireball through the rows. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like help me stay sober. And I go to the reception and the, the bride was Greek and her dad had like a giant bottle of Sambuca and they're doing this like huge Greek cultural thing. It's so exciting, but it's also like getting really wild now. And I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to make it through this wedding? You know? And, um, I looked over and I just happened to catch this couple that were standing in the corner with um, their baby. Now, I'm not a biological mom. I stepmom, which I love that, but I don't have children of my own. And so this baby was maybe like six months old because it was like really cute. It was like chubby and cute, right? But still like holdable. So these two people were in this corner. They're like looking at this baby. And it was like nothing else mattered to them. Yeah. It was like nothing else was there. They couldn't hear any of the chaos, any of the craziness. They were just so obsessed and in love with their little baby and I watched them watching their baby and I realized like you know whatever crummy stuff I've done and whatever kind of person I've turned out to be and whatever kind of crummy stuff my parents have done I know there was a time that they looked at me like that and I believe in that I believe in love I believe in the power of love and that really cranked open like a whole that really opened a whole door of um, higher power God love belief for me where I was like, wow, I believe in the power of love. It took me more than a year to get there, but I started to really understand this force of nature of love and how it could be a protective force and how it could help me stay sober. And then also help me in my relationship life too. Yeah. And I say, if that's what it does, if that's what it takes for you, then Hey, then that's what it takes. Yes, I agree. Oh, I mean, hey, if, I've talked about this all the time and and I want people to understand this. Yes, this is a Christian recovery 12-step podcast. I talk about it all the time because that's what worked for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nothing else worked. I've been in recovery for, since 2014, Nothing worked except for a Christian 12-step recovery program. But guys, if it was jail that got you sober, mm-hmm. then that's great. If it was meditation or holistic methods, mm-hmm. that's great. I'm not going to sit here and slam one method of recovery into you. That's just not, I mean... I believe what works for you works for you because what worked for me worked for me after I tried many, many other things. So I'm snapping over here. I agree. If, if that's what it took for you, honey, then that's great. <laughs> I mean, because recovery isn't just one pathway. I uh, just had an episode release where it talks about the different pathways of recovery. And it's just not one path that is cut to stone. There's many different ways to get to sobriety and recovery and so that that's awesome and that's that's a great story of uh 
of how one person found their recovery or their sobriety. Uh, Heidi, I want to backtrack a little bit. Okay. I know you talked about your childhood kind of leading up into uh, your addiction. I know you talked about your recovery. I know you've talked about finding your higher power. I am a sucker for hearing about rock bottoms. Mm. When you reached out to the show, something stood out in your media kit. And it talked, it was talking about two rock bottoms. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, that struck my, that, that got my attention. You had my curiosity, but now you have my attention when you talked about two rock bottoms. I've got to know about these two rock bottoms. Take me through that part of your journey. Yeah, so the I had two rock bottoms. The first rock bottom was the bottom that I experienced with alcohol, which I ended up getting so, well, it's funny to call it the first, because honestly, I had a series of, I started bottoming out with alcohol nearly as soon as I started drinking it, to be totally honest. You know, I started drinking at 15. By the time I was 17, it already was not working for me. Um, people already didn't want to hang out with me at parties. You know, all, oh my God, I had this one. I went home one year for, it must've been, I must've been 18 because I'd been away at school and I came home one year for a holiday and we're drinking at a friend's house. And, you know, I have like a whole bottle of vodka to myself. And, um, and somebody says, somebody turns to me and says, Heidi, why are you drinking like that? And I'm like, you know what? Screw you. This is stupid. You're stupid. I hate everyone here. I'm going, you know, screw you guys. And I actually went down into the basement and just got drunk by myself and came out of a blackout in the middle of this person's basement. Ugh, the, the setup to this story is that my, this friend of mine had a sister who was a pageant queen and she was like all into pageants. And we used to just, mer we were merciless with her. We were so mean to her. And so I was at this friend's house. And so I told everyone to go screw themselves, went down to the basement, kept drinking, came out of a blackout with my pants down in the basement. And I had peed all over her pageant, sashes, crowns, tiaras, photos, everything, ruined them, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> and the next morning was like, that was great. Let's do that again, right? Like consequences never mattered to me. It didn't matter who I hurt. It didn't matter what bridges I burned. And honestly, that was only three years into my drinking. And that's what it started. That's what it looked like at the beginning, you know? So years later, countless humiliating, indescribable, circumstances. I uh, had run-ins with law enforcement. I was just like, you know, just really was like on, just always on one and very unpredictable. I am very, very lucky that I talk about it actually a lot in the book because half of my book is memoir and half of it is how to, but I, it is by no um, really means of my own that I came through my drinking unscathed, that I wasn't assaulted, that I wasn't hurt, that I didn't hurt somebody else. So, um, you know, I experienced bottoms with my drinking, rock bottoms with my drinking as young as 17. I was court carded to AA by the time I was 20. I skipped a court date because I felt entitled, like I, like the rules didn't apply to me and I didn't have to go to that. And I actually was remanded to Allegheny County Jail. I spent 18 hours in a holding cell there. Luckily, because of my privilege, the, probably because of the color of my skin and the privilege of my socioeconomic status, I was able to navigate the legal system with very few consequences as a result of that. It never stuck on my record. Um, by the time I was in my 20s, I had, I had lost jobs and relationships. Um, I had uh, at least three suicide attempts that were serious enough to be considered you know, attempts. Um, but I could never connect the dots on my drinking because I always just barely had enough going on. So it's really strange. My rock bottom with alcohol, the, the, you know, is 
with all the chaos that I had endured over the years, right, from 15 to 31, over 16 years of drinking, I had certainly had bigger consequences than what happened to me the last night I was out, which was really nothing. So my rock bottom story with alcohol is kind of like, meh, you know, I just woke up one morning and was like, I'm in real trouble if I keep doing this. Um, and so that was the story with that. But then what happened for me was that two years into sobriety, I was really acting in my character defects, which was that I felt like, look, I'm above board now. Look, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I go to work when I'm supposed to go to work. My only vices that are left now are parking illegally and sleeping with whoever I want to sleep with, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I decided to make an arrangement with this guy who was involved with someone else because I just felt like I do what I want. Um, and like I said, you can do whatever you want in sobriety, but you got to feel all the emotional consequences that come with it. Um, so I made this arrangement with this guy and he was involved with someone else. And uh, we decided we were just going to get together and get down regardless of what was going on with him. And at the time that felt, like I said, it was definitely ego driven. It was very much like um, self will run riot, very much like I felt entitled to do what I wanted because like I was doing all these other things right. Um, and I felt like, oh, that's authentic to me. I've seen sex in the city. I feel like empowered. This is what, you know, whatever. So uh, we started doing that. And then a couple months later, he broke up with this girl. And then a, couple, a month after that, he came to me and was like, you know, I don't really think I can do this with you anymore. I feel like I'm objectifying you. I'm not really sure how I feel about it do you think we could like go to dinner and get down? And I was like, well, we could do that, but that would be dating. And he was like, well, I told you from the beginning, I do not want to date you. That is never something that's going to happen. And when he said that the bottom fell out for me. And I realized in that moment that I'd been being dishonest with myself that the whole time I'd really been hoping that he was going to dump her and choose me. And that this behavior that I'd been engaging in with him was no longer authentic to who I was and that I did not want to do this anymore. But then I'm looking around and I'm like, oh my God, the only tools I have to be in a relationship with someone are to swipe left or right. Like, I don't know how to do this, you wow. know? Because for 15 years, 16 years I've been drinking, for two years I've been sober and I don't know how to do anything except kind of like slut around, which I was lying to myself about how good that felt. It felt kind of good, but eventually it didn't feel good anymore and I did not have any tools to try something different because swiping left and swiping right, which are awesome if you want to date. Like that's one of the, one of the things that is in the context of the book is this, like if you're dating and you're having a good time doing whatever it is you're doing, awesome, keep doing it. But if you find yourself where I was, which is that I wanted something different. I wanted to be in a committed, long-term, intimate, sustainable relationship, but I did not have any tools. Then, then this book's for you if that's what you're ready for, you know? So, um, in, Oh, go it's ahead. It's almost like you, uh, you, and I, I talk about this a lot. You had a void mm. that you were trying to fill with something else. A and thousand percent. Just never was able to fill that void. Yeah, the God-sized hole is real. You can run as many miles as you want to run. I mean, I did that too, right? I compulsively exercised the first year of sobriety. I ran so many miles on treadmills. I did so many, I did marathons, all that stuff, right? You can run, you can shop, you can eat, you can F, right? You can do all those things. But like at the end of the day, you got to get right with you and you got to get right with a higher power, whether you call that God, universe, whatever, right? And nothing, nothing filled that hole for me until I got still and by myself. And honestly, when I reached out to a friend about this problem I was having with men in relationships, she's like, well, I have some suggestions for you. And the first one is 
I want you to stop talking to men. And I was like, what? She's like, no DMs, no messages, no texts, no, like you got to set some boundaries. And I was like, God, I, talk about willingness. I did not want to do that because I felt like I already do all, you know, I'm already doing all things. I'm sober. Yeah. She's like, listen, if you want to have something different, you're going to have to set some boundaries around the men in your life. And, you know, honestly, I agreed to it because I thought it would take like 12 days. I thought like, she's going to tell me to do some stuff. It's going to take me 30 days because you get kind of in that mind. In 12 step work, you get kind of into that 30 day cycle, right? So, yeah. so I'm like, oh, it's going to take me 30 days. I'm going to do what she said for 30 days. I can do that. Honestly, it took me 11 months to do the work that she outlined for me and that I now outline in this book. It won't take everyone 11 months to do that if they decide. But I, but again, it was just this moment of willingness where because I only thought it was going to take 30 days, I said, okay, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. And honestly, that, ha that has gotten me everywhere in my recovery. When I take suggestion from people I trust, because like, I'll just, you know, it's not well, people's anonymous. So when people who have what I want make suggestions, I, I tend to take them. And that willingness has really gotten me everywhere. And Heidi, that, that's where the hope is. Mm. Uh, I, I like that to be open to other people trying to help you. Cause we want to, we kind of want to do, do it our way. I got this. I got this. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but man, Heidi, uh, to go, to go from where you were at, you know, with uh, being, you know, start drinking at such a young age and to go through the things that you've gone through and to end up here, as a recovery author and as a relationship coach and to do to do these things that is so awesome and it's a miracle and Truly. to me that right there is the biggest ray of hope that I can think of Heidi you are a lighthouse of hope to those that are drowning in the hopelessness of addiction if your story ain't a fiery example of hope and the perfect example of we do recover, then I don't know what is. And as we finish this up, uh, I know you got stuff to do and I don't want to keep you any longer than I got to. As we wrap this up, I've got four questions for you. Okay. And these are the questions I ask everybody who comes on here. Number one, Heidi, what is the biggest thing that you have taken from your story? What are some lessons learned on your end? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the biggest thing is open-mindedness. That like, I don't know as much as I think I know. <laughs> and so if I can, you know, I use um, something that I call the set-aside prayer quite a bit, which is, you know, God, set aside everything I think I know about fill in the blank. You know, God, set aside everything I think I know about recovery. Grant me an open mind that I might have a new experience about you, recovery, AA, and my life, right? And what I love about that set aside prayer is you just, you can fill in the blank with anything. Set aside everything I know about, set aside everything I think I know about X. Grant me an open mind that I might have a new experience about it. It's short, it's sweet, and it just helps me to set aside all these preconceived notions, all these ideas that I have about the way things are so open-mindedness has gotten me everywhere and i think to get to that you've got to have a certain level of humility mm -hmm. you've got to 
to recognize, hey, I don't know it all. I need some help. Yeah. So that, that's great. I, I like that. Question number two, what would you tell someone that is going through the same thing right now that you came out of? Yeah, this is something that I hear a lot in 12-step, and I just think the value is incredible, which is this. Your story, whatever challenges or hardships you're facing is valid no matter what. It's hard. Like, I'm not going to sit here and try. If you're suffering, I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you, like, you're not really suffering. You're suffering. That sucks. But I'm going to say this, which is that it, your suffering makes you uniquely qualified to help another person who suffers in the same way. And that's why sharing our stories un, in a way that is where we're proud, where we're unashamed of what's going on. That's like, you know, it was scary to write a book where I put everything, all my bad decisions on blast, like all of them. My mom read it. My brother read it. If my dad were alive, he would have read it. It's like, but I was like, look, if my experience can help one other woman feel like she is not alone feel like she's not the only one who can't get the hang of this relationship thing, feel like she's not the only one who can't stay stopped when she decides to stop drinking, then that's an important enough reason for my story to be out there. So I just always feel like you don't have to shout your story from a podcast or from the rooftops, but if you are active in recovery, then know that the suffering you're experiencing, any challenges you're having are, are hard, but they're also helping you to help the next person who suffers from the same ones. That's right. Amen to that. And that's something that uh, I haven't really got to talk about much on here. It's something mm -hmm. I talk about in my home group is mm -hmm. being ashamed. Uh, mm -hmm. That's hence the name of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Be ashamed. Be unashamed. It is saying, hey, I went through this. I can help the next person. Yeah. And my, my story is going to help the next person. Uh, I'm a firm believer that God pulled me out of the pit. Mm -hmm. to go back and help more people get out of the pit. It's true. And it's like, why do we get, you know, when we're drinking, we're blacked out or whatever. We don't know what, we don't know what we're doing. Right. And it's like, recovery is by far the bravest, most courageous thing that I have ever done. And that the people in my life who are doing it have, it is such a gift to be on the journey with other people who are doing recovery. Why would we be ashamed of that? There's no shame in saying like, look, this way of living does not work for me anymore getting drunk, getting loaded, getting blacked out. It doesn't, there's, and I don't know why there's all this shame in saying that, but it doesn't work anymore. And I'm going to try something different. And like this different thing I'm trying is going to help me be present and tolerant and loving and kind. Like there's no shame in that. I want to just pause right quick. I'm being felt compelled to share this. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Bible, Jesus heals the man and tells him to take up his mat and walk. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Heidi, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that story. But Jesus tells the man, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Now, why didn't Jesus tell him, say, hey, just walk, go and just walk? He told that man to pick up his mat and walk because the mat was where the man came from. That was the man's story. That was the testimony. The man couldn't walk before he was lame. So Jesus is telling us, man, hey, pick up your mat and walk. Tell people where you came from. Let people mm -hmm. see where you once were to where you are now. And I think that's so important. Whether, whether or not you're secular, religious, whatever, I think it's so important for us to embrace where we've came from, mm -hmm. to embrace our failure, to mm -hmm. embrace the rock bottom that we hit. 
-hmm. and embrace it, let people see it, and let people know that it can be overcome, that people can recover from it, and people can win against it. And I'm sorry that I, I got on my soapbox there. For no, that. I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> so moving right along into mm -hmm. question number three, Heidi, what impact do you think that the old you has on the current you? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the things I'm really learning is that, you know, I really feel like in this season of sobriety, so I've been sober since 9, 10, 11. I'm coming up on nine years in September. And I really feel like so much of the journey now is not about the physical cravings. I mean, yeah, I still occasionally think like, wow, a drink would be nice. It's a beautiful day outside. It would be nice yeah. to be able to sit at a park bench or not a park bench at a, that's where I'd end up at a patio or whatever at a bar, have a drink, right? It's not so much about the physical sobriety anymore. It is about really coming to terms with the fact like I'm a human and that means I'm having a human experience. And that means I'm going to feel all the emotions and like, they're really not good or bad. And even like the 12 step literature says, like, you're going to feel all of them. The place that alcoholics that we get in trouble is when they get super disproportionate, when our fear gets super disproportionate and like takes over the driver's seat of our life or our rage gets super disproportionate. And like, it's the only lens we see stuff through. So it's like a good reminder to me that like being in recovery does not mean that I'm not going to feel my feelings. It actually means I'm going to feel more feelings than I ever want to feel truly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it means I'm going to learn how to just have a human experience and, and navigate my feelings and not let them create wreckage in my life. So I feel like that's kind of a roundabout way to get to just like the old me is helping the new me understand that like I'm a work in progress and that it is really progress, not perfection. And it is really just like navigating the human experience. Yeah, I like that. That, mm. that's a different way of looking at it i like that a lot and heidi our last question and mm -hmm. it's really not so much a question but i guess you could say it is i want to thank you once again for coming on the show and and being here and being willing to uh, to share and to share your incredible story and willing to be so open and vulnerable about it mm -hmm. and i know that it's not always an easy thing to do and so to show my appreciation, I want to give you a few moments of an open mic. Uh, my show is your show. You have the chance to say anything that you need to say or that you want to say to that one person who may be listening that needs to hear what you had to say. What would you say to that person? Oh, wow. Well, thank you for that. It has been a true pleasure to be on the show. I love talking recovery. And I just would say, you know, um, it's never too late. You can always change your mind and you don't have to do it alone. Like I, I just really, really believe the, in the power of community and the power of finding some people who are doing what you need to do, even if you don't want to do it, right? Like uh, one of my favorite sayings that I hear in 12 step is, you know, recovery is for people who are willing to do it, not people who need it or want it. It's for people who just do it, right? So, you know, whether you need or want recovery, if it's something you're curious about, if it's something that you're thinking about, there's probably a reason you're thinking about it. So, you know, do what you can to hop on a Zoom meeting, a 12-step Zoom meeting, or get to a meeting in person when you can get there in real life. I remember thinking like, oh my God, if I utter the A word, I will forever, I'll never be able to drink again. If I go into this, you know, my first meeting, I did not even say I'm Heidi, I'm alcoholic. I just said, I'm Heidi, you know, and the, and 
if only it was that easy, right? To actually, with some time now, I'm like, dang, if only it was that easy to just go, I'm hiding, I'm alcoholic, and then I never drink again. That would be like, whoo, amazing. But the first day I was so afraid to say that because I felt like, oh my God, if I say the A word, I'm never going to be able to drink again. And like, yeah. that's not true, right? Plenty of alcoholics go in and out and struggle with this disease. And so the point being, it's never too late. You can always try something different. And in order to do something different, you got to do something different. So if you have tried recovery before, but been unwilling to work all the steps, or if you've tried recovery before, but been unwilling to try a different sponsor, once you and your first sponsor get in your first big fight, like that's the other thing about sponsorship. You don't have to marry your sponsor. I mean, if you don't, you're not, you're not looking for someone to spend the rest of your life with. You just need someone to take you through this guide, you know? It's, so it's not a lifelong <laughs> commitment. That's right. Um, so, you know, I know I, I would just say, give it another try and it's never too late to change your mind. Um, and so I guess that's not quite as eloquent as I would have hoped, but that's where I land on that. <laughs> well, stuff. it works. And I'm Good. sure that that was meant for somebody who needs to hear exactly what you had to say. Mm. I, I don't doubt that at all. So, and with that, that winds up another episode of Unashamed. Uh, Heidi, if somebody wants to reach out to you and to uh, to maybe book you on another recovery podcast or to speak at a recovery group, mm -hmm. or maybe somebody wants to be able to buy your book. I know it's on Amazon. And guys, we're going to be posting that link in the description of the video and of the show notes of the podcast. You can be able to buy our book or if somebody wants to reach out, maybe get a relationship coaching, how can somebody get in contact with you? What's the best way for them to, to reach you, Heidi? Yeah, there's two places that are great to find me. First, I'm on Instagram. I'm at honeybee, just the letter B, honeybee52. Um, and then, and you can all, you can get to, once you find me on Instagram, you can find everything else. Or you can head to my website, HeidiBCoaching.com. I will tell you there is a page on my website that has a resources tab. And on the bottom of that tab is a 12-step talk that I gave that gives my entire sobriety story. It's about an hour long. So if you're interested in the whole thing, you can click on that and listen to it. Um, but yeah, you can either find me on my website or find me on Instagram. Those are the places I'm at the most.
Thank you.